to find out John is an excellent and eloquent proclaimer of God's word in the gospel. But what I really appreciate about John is really his heart. When I came to Rochester 11 years ago, about this time, there was a letter on my desk from C. John Steer of Autumn Ridge. Who is that? Little did I know that John was an influential pastor here in town. Influential not only with his church, but influential on the other pastors. See, John was a leader in our Evangelical Pastors Fellowship. And I've always appreciated about that, John. There's a sense of generosity and magnanimity from him. He always cared and always said, how are you doing? He was a pastor to pastors. And he has since uh, retired from his leadership spot at Autumn Ridge as the lead pastor there, but you're going to find that there is still plenty left in the tank. So, with no further ado, let's give a warm Berean welcome to John Steer. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. I am deeply honored to be here at Berean, and it's lovely to see a number of people that I recognize. Pastor Nathan Brand is a man of great faith. I have seen that over the years, but particularly in this invitation, because he invited me up front to speak twice. And the wise choice would have been to give me one and see how it went, and then consider a second invitation. But that's just the gracious fellow he is. And he said, preach twice on a truth that really thrills you. And so I decided to speak on one of the most superb subjects in the world. Because to my mind, there are few topics more terrific than heaven. Let me tell you why I think heaven is vitally important. And the first is that eternity is long and life is short. Francis Chan has a great illustration of this, which I can illustrate with this rope here. As you can see, the, the rope goes from the pulpit over to the door. And I went there, want you to imagine it then goes north to Minneapolis and then Duluth up into Canada. It passes Winnipeg. It makes its way across the Arctic by Victory Island to the North Pole. And then our rope takes off into space. The rope whizzes by the moon, then Venus and Mercury. It goes past the sun, which is 91 million miles away, and it then proceeds on to the outer reaches of the universe. You see, this is an eternal rope. And I am holding one end of it in my hand, and you will notice that the first three inches of this rope are covered with white tape. And this white tape illustrates our life on earth. It is incredibly short compared with what is to come. And yet in our arrogance, we think that this is all that there is. 
and we worry incessantly about happy we're going to be in this life and the material things we can collect in this very short life. And some of us work frantically for the first two and a half inches of our rope in the hope that we can enjoy the last half inch in retirement before we die. But God has given us this short life in order to prepare for what is to come. He wants us to give this life to him so that he can redeem it and he can make it count. Now, ideally, we do this when we're young and we heed Solomon's advice to remember our creator in the days of our youth. And that way we get to experience the rest of the rope in God's presence where there'll be no limit to the activities we can enjoy. The second reason this subject is important is that heaven is glorious. We had a foretaste of that, I think, in the songs that we just sung about our future home. And so it's wonderfully worth reflecting on. One hot Sunday in 1899, D.L. Moody, the great American evangelist of the 19th century, told a crowd in New York City, Someday you'll read in the paper that Dwight Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I should be more alive than I am now. And just four months later, Moody was dying. His son, Will, was startled by his father's voice from the bed across the room saying, Earth recedes. Heaven opens before me. And so Will hurried to his father's side, and his dad continued, This is not a dream, Will. It's beautiful. If this is death, it is sweet. God is calling me, and I must go. A third reason I think this subject is incredibly important is that we don't think enough of heaven because we're far too preoccupied with earth. Philip Yancey notes, The strange fact about modern American life is that although 71% of us believe in an afterlife, no one talks much about it. Christians believe that we'll spend eternity in a splendid place called heaven. Isn't it a little bizarre that we simply ignore heaven, acting as if it didn't matter? Strangely, even theologians don't think much about heaven. One of the great books of doctrine is Lewis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. And yet Burkhoff only devotes one of his 784 pages to this amazing subject of heaven. A fourth reason this subject is so vital is that thinking about heaven energizes us for mission. C.S. Lewis notes, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were those who thought most of the next. It's because Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. So let's spend some time this morning thinking about heaven. And let's begin by asking, what will heaven be like? And I invite you to take part in the experiment. Close your eyes. Now picture heaven. What do you see? Who is there? What's going on around you? What sensations and emotions do you feel? What does the landscape look like? Is the sun shining? Hold that picture in your mind. 
you can open your eyes now. And I wonder what you saw. It's quite likely we each had a different picture of heaven. Now, where did those ideas come from? They arose from a variety of sources. First, our concept of heaven comes from our preferences. We project our own ideas of pleasure into heaven. So let me tell you about one of my favorite pictures of heaven. I am opening the batting for England against Australia at Lord's, which is the headquarters of world cricket. And I make a hundred runs and England thrash Australia. Now, most of you have not a clue what I am talking about, but that's a picture of sublime pleasure for me. Another man might say, oh, heaven is winning the Masters at Augusta. Young woman might say, oh, no, no, heaven is playing tennis at Wimbledon. And all three pictures are personal preferences. The reality is there may not be cricket in heaven, tragic as that thought is. And then our concept of heaven comes from movies. <clears throat> Films have a, a powerful ability to shake our thinking. And we might be influenced by movies like Just Like Heaven or All Dogs Go to Heaven. And then our concept of heaven comes from stories. And these may be stories our parents told us or stories from books. Many people's idea of heaven owes more to Dante's divine comedy than it does to the scriptures. And if you remember your high school English class, Dante is led by his guide Virgil through hell, purgatory, and finally paradise. It really is a brilliant Italian poem. And Doré drew illustrations for Dante's divine comedy, and these have molded our ideas about life after death. However, there are disadvantages to depending on stories, however good, or movies, however great, in understanding what heaven will be like. See, the problem is these sources are often inaccurate. They tell us, for example, that everyone goes to heaven, which they don't. Or they suggest that when babies die, they become little angels. And that's not true. Angels are a separate order of creation for human beings. Stories like Dickens' Christmas Carol conveys the idea that dead people can come back as ghosts. And that's not true either. They don't. All demons may appear in the shape of someone who died, but a dead person cannot return as a ghost. A second problem with these sources is that very often they're boring because they're limited by human imagination. And as a result, rather than looking forward to heaven, we, we dread it. For a long time, I thought that heaven was a continuous worship service. Now, I like going to church more than most. But it's hard to be excited about singing choruses for centuries at a time. The British Prime Minister Lloyd George has a similar concern. He said, when I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place of perpetual Sundays with perpetual services from which there would be no escape. It's a wonderful passage in Huckleberry Finn that captures this problem that heaven can seem dull, downright dull. You remember that rascal lived with the Christian spinster, Miss Watson, and she attacked Huck's fun-loving spirit. And Huck says, she went on and on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. 
I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, not by a considerable sight. I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. Now, it's clear that God's people should look forward to heaven. But if it seems boring, we won't be keen to go. We'll be like the fellow who said, heaven may be my home, but I'm not homesick yet. So where can we get a reliable picture of heaven? And the answer is the testimony of Scripture. The Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit who dwells in heaven. It tells us about God the Father who reigns in heaven. It describes the work of God the Son who came from heaven. They're all authorities on heaven. So what does the Scriptures tell us about heaven? And to our surprise, we discover that heaven's not one place, but two. Our future involves two homes. First, there's heaven, our intermediate home, and this is where our soul goes when we die. It's where all the Christians who've died in the past are at this very moment, and we're told remarkably little about this heaven. We do know it's an actual place. It's the Father's house, because Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And we get the important clue about this heaven in Jesus' words to the the dying thief on the cross when he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. This indicates that our soul goes immediately to heaven when we die. There, There is no waiting. The repentant thief would be with Jesus that very day. We see that Jesus uses that word paradise. It's a, it's a Persian word meaning the garden around the king's palace. It speaks of, of closeness to the king. And that's what heaven is. It's enjoying the presence of Jesus and being in his company. But this heaven's not our permanent destination. As N.T. Wright, the great New Testament scholar, puts it, there is life after life after death. This is an intermediate step between our physical death and the resurrection of our body. It's going to be delightful and glorious and wonderfully happy. But beyond that, we don't know a great deal about it. What we do know is there's going to come a time when we will leave this first heaven in the company of Jesus and we'll go to our second home. And this is the new heaven and the new earth, and it is our eternal home. And we know this place very well because it's our present world. We're going to return here at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And scripture tells us that when Jesus returns, the bodies of the saints that now lie in their graves will be raised and they'll be given a glorious new resurrection body. And Paul tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that will happen when Jesus returns to this earth and his saints and angels, with his saints and angels to establish his eternal reign. At that time, he's going to transform our lowly body so it's like our glorious body. And that's important because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God and nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul explains this momentous event in these words. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. When the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that's written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And when Christians are glorified, creation itself will be renewed. And Romans tells us the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. 
And perhaps you're thinking to yourself, but wait a minute, I, I thought this world was going to be destroyed. And it's true, isn't it, that Peter tells us the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire in the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And perhaps like me, you were told this described an atomic explosion that destroyed the earth. And afterwards, every Christian would escape into a heaven in the sky. But I don't think that's what Peter is actually saying. Most commentators agree that Peter's using apocalyptic language. He's describing the day of judgment. And at that time, all the systems of this world that are opposed to Christ will be totally annihilated and destroyed. But Peter can't be suggesting that this earth will come to an end, for he goes on to say, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, God's not going to ruin this world, but restore it. And so theologian J.I. Packer tells us, heaven will take the form of a reconstructed cosmos. Commentator William Hendrickson informs us, the gloriously renewed universe will be ours to enjoy and to use for the glory of God. Doesn't that make it easier to picture heaven in your mind? It's not a strange place that we don't know. It's this world that we love, made perfect. And that's why we read those verses from Genesis at the beginning of the service. They describe what this planet was like before it was infected with sin. And one day, this world will be like that once again. For when Jesus died, it wasn't only to save our souls, but to restore the perfect world that he had made. I used to think there'd be no animals in heaven, and that discouraged me. I thought that because animals don't have souls and heaven's a spiritual faith place. I've changed my mind about that, because when God made the paradise of Eden, there were animals. There's every reason to think cats and dogs would be there in the new heaven and earth. And there's a love. Well, no, I've got two cats. <laughs> I've got two cats at home, and recently they raised their paw in evangelistic meetings, so they will be there as well. In his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem writes, the new heaven and earth will be filled with activities like eating and drinking and musical and artistic activities, as well as the whole range of investigation and development of the creation by technological, creative, and inventive means. Doesn't that make you feel better about heaven? It's not some boring life of sitting on fluffy clouds strumming harps. It's living in this magnificent world with a perfect body. We all know that this world can be lovely now, but imagine it with everything evil removed. For Jesus is going to take everything unjust and unfair away in his new heaven and earth. But the new heaven and earth won't just be a restored Garden of Eden. It'll be even better. Because Revelation tells us that the new Jerusalem comes down from the first heaven to this new heaven and earth. And John writes, I saw the new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now what is the significance of this new Jerusalem? Well, it's the home of God. It's the home of Jesus it's the home of the Spirit. It'll be the center of restored universe. It's going to make heaven so glorious that the writers of the Scriptures can't describe it. 
And so they use a variety of expressions to tell us about our eternal home. It's referred to as the heavenly country in Hebrews 11. It's described as the holy city in Revelation and the home of righteousness in Second Peter. In Colossians, it's called the kingdom of light. And John tells us it's the paradise of God. And together they inform us that heaven will be spectacular, incredible, and utterly splendid. And when we see it, which we shall, we'll be saying, I never imagined it would be this good. As the writers of scripture struggle to tell us what heaven will be like, they start by telling us what is absent. John announces, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Think of a world where there's no bereavement or suffering or accidents or injuries or mental illness. There are no hospitals or nursing homes or police forces or armies because all that's part of the old order. Those organizations deal with the consequences of sin. But sin's been removed in the new heaven and earth. Some years ago, Bill Gates included a fascinating graphic on his blog to highlight creatures that are responsible for human deaths every year. And you can, you can see the, the list there, I think, on the screen, perhaps in very small writing. But it, it says a shark's responsible for 10 deaths. Amazing, we, every time a shark kills someone, it's international news. A shark is 10 deaths. A crocodile, though, is 1,000 deaths. A tapeworm is 2,000 deaths. A freshwater snail, 10,000 deaths. A dog that he likes so much. 25. <laughs> 25,000 deaths. None for a cat, I'm glad to say. <laughs> and then a mosquito. Our state bird. A mosquito. 725,000 deaths. That's that, what that little insect can do. But in Christ's kingdom, the lion will lie down with the lamb, not eat him. Just imagine how much better this world would be without the mosquitoes and the diseases that they carry. Interestingly, we're told that there was no longer any sea. I suspect that does not mean the oceans will be absent, for God created the sea and he declared it good. I think rather it means that in the first century, the sea was a fearful place. Sailors took off in their little boats and they were, they were never seen again. And the absence of sea means that fear is totally removed in heaven. Thinking of living forever in safety and without fear, never having to lock the doors, never having to look over your shoulder, never having to fear going out on a dark night. And then we're informed no longer will there be any curse. And it's the curse that's hurt humanity since sin entered the world. But the curse will be gone. As a result, there's no more poverty or prejudice or hunger or homelessness or injustice or abuse. John Gill was a Bible teacher in a previous century. And he tried to describe what heaven will be like without the curse. He said, it's full of light and glory, having the delightful breezes of divine love and the comforting gales of the blessed spirit. Here is no heat or persecution, nor coldness, nor chills of affliction. Here is plenty of delicious fruit, nor hunger, nor thirst. And here are riches which are solid, satisfying, safe, and sure. Here is the freedom from a body subject to disease 
and death. And then scripture describes heaven in terms of what is present. And most important of all, Jesus is there. Revelation says, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Many of the modern portrayals of heaven don't show Jesus. But it's his presence that makes it heaven. In heaven, we'll see Jesus face to face in all his glory. We'll gaze on his countenance. And there can be no more exhilarating thrill for a human than to look upon the face of the divine creator and to have fellowship with him forever. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, wrote, Oh, to think of heaven without Christ. It's a day without the sun, existing without life, feasting without food, seeing without light. It's the sea without water, the earth without its fields, the heavens without their stars. There cannot be a heaven without Christ. He is the sum total of bliss, the fountain from which heaven flows. The other day I was sitting with a dear man who was dying. And I said to him, we've been looking at this passage. I said, that heaven is soon going to be your experience. And he said, I'm looking forward to it. It's a wonderfully comforting thought. And I rejoice, he's, he's there now. And I'm going to see him again. For you see, other believers are going to be there in heaven. Will we recognize one another? Well, of course we will. David knew he would be reunited with his dead son in heaven. The disciples recognized Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. They weren't strangers. They'd never met before, but they knew them. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man, Lazarus and Abraham were all recognized by each other. And then, of course, Paul tells us, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And there are lots of people in heaven. We were told there's going to be billions of believers. And we won't need name tags because we'll all know each other. And we're going to enjoy a level of fellowship unimaginable here on earth. We discover heaven's a busy place. For in addition to all the saints of all the ages, there's far too many angels to count. Rush hour could be a problem because the place will be packed with all of God's elect. And then there's joy in heaven. David says, you'll fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasure at your right hand. And where there's joy, there is laughter, for heaven is a happy place. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, if we're not allowed to laugh in heaven, I don't want to go. Well, he needn't worry. Because in heaven, our joy will often erupt in laughter. Humor originated with God. He was the one who gave us the gift of mirth. After all, Jesus said, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. C.S. Lewis depicts laughter in heaven when his characters attend the great reunion in the new Narnia. And Lewis says, there was greeting and kissing and handshaking and old jokes revived. You've no idea how good an old joke sounds after you take it out again after a rest of 500 or 600 years. And so the vital question is, how do we get to this glorious place called heaven? In England, my home country, there's a tombstone that reads, 
Poor stranger, when you pass me by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you will be, and so prepare for death and follow me. The passerby read those words and scratched this reply below them. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) Well, Jesus went to heaven and he tells us how to get there. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Jesus tells us that we enter heaven by a narrow gate. It's as narrow as the new birth. It's as narrow as knowing that Jesus is the only way. And the fact that the way is narrow indicates that we come alone and we, we bring nothing with us. When we pass through a turnstile, we do it alone. We don't carry a lot of baggage with us. And that's the way we must enter the kingdom of heaven. We come just as we are, depending and trusting in the grace of God. Now, many people think they're good enough to get into heaven, but that's simply not the case. Not the very best of us can make it on our own. If you Google the question, who saved more lives in history than anyone else, you come up with a name that most of us have never heard of. For the answer is Norman Borlaug. He was from Cresco, Iowa. He died in 2009 at the age of 95. He is a man who the world, for the most part, didn't pay a lot of attention to, even in his lifetime. But he saved more people than anyone else in history. He's only one of six people who've won the Nobel Peace Prize, the Congressional Medal of Honor, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So who was Norman Borlaug? Well, he was an agricultural scientist in the 20th century who invented high-yield, drought-resistant, disease-resistant crops that saved over one billion people from starvation. It's fair to say he's the father of the Green Revolution. And before his discoveries, countries like China, India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan had regular famines every year. And all four of those countries now export food because they started using Norman Borlaug's high-yield, drought-resistant, disease-resistant crops. The executive director of the United Nations Food Program said this about him. He said, Norman Borlaug saved more lives than any man in human history. His heart was as big as his brilliant mind but it was his passion and his compassion that moved the world. Norman Borlaug was a truly great man. He was a real hero. But if you'd asked him, were you perfect? He'd say, no, I wasn't. If you'd asked him, were you the savior of the world? He'd say, absolutely not. But you see, Norman Borlaug was a Christian. He put his faith in Jesus Christ. It was the motivation for all of his scientific efforts. He was a lifelong member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Even someone like Norman Borlaug does not score a hundred on the scale. He needs a perfect savior. And so do I. And so do you. Jonathan Edwards used to say, if men would go to heaven, they must first be made fit for it. And to be fit for heaven is to have our lives invaded by the God of heaven. Eastern Orthodox Christians have the practice of repeating the Jesus prayer. 
And this prayer goes, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when we say that Jesus prayer, and we really mean it, we are born again. We enter by the narrow gate. And that means we can look forward to heaven. We can live now in the light of it. We don't need to fear death because it's only the door to our heavenly home. And to have this confidence in Christ means that when our time comes, which it will, we can die in peace like the Christians who've gone before us. David Brainard, the great missionary, said as he was dying, I'm going into eternity and it is sweet for me to think of eternity. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, as he faced death, said, Best of all, God is with us. His mother, Susanna, on her deathbed instructed, Children, when I'm gone, sing a song of praise to God. And why not, when we know what heaven is really like? James Gilmore was a missionary to Mongolia. His health was deteriorating, and he knew he wouldn't live long. He wrote in his journal in 1889, Heaven is ahead. Hurrah! And every Christian can write that. Heaven is ahead. Hurrah! Hurrah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man to conceive the things that you have prepared for those who love you. We recognize we do not have the words or the imagination to think of the eternal future you prepared for us, and yet we're thankful that, like Paul, you've given us a glimpse into glory. Because of this, we rejoice that heaven is a reality. It's even more real than the homes we're about to return to. For while those homes will one day be destroyed, our heavenly home will last forever. Father, we ask that you keep our eyes fixed on our glorious future as your children. Help us to know that heaven is all love. All hatred is banished there. And the continual sight of your beauty keeps us in constant delight. Help us to know that heaven is all peace. War and pride and error and rebellion and earthquakes can never raise their head there for we are safe in your keeping. Help us to know that heaven is all joy. Depression and anxiety are gone there. Bereavement, mourning and sadness are things of the past. For your presence is exquisite joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus, as you prepare a place for us, prepare us also for that place that where you are, we may be also. We ask all these things in the name of our Savior from heaven. Amen.